You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose. This week's edition is a coronation special, recorded just ahead of the crowning of King Charles III, due just after I'm speaking to you. I got into a discussion on Twitter with James Butler, who is commissioning editor at the London Review of Books, but whom some of you might know better from his time at Navarra Media. James had mentioned King Charles was relatively unusual amongst the royal family in being quite interested in ideas and having some relatively systematic views about the world. Charles, fairly notoriously by this point, has not been slow to offer his opinions on various subjects, famously on architecture and ecology, but also on a huge range of other issues, including some quite well-developed ideas about economics, as a read-through Harmony, his 2010 book written with Tony Juniper and Ian Skelly demonstrates in abundance. So I thought it would be interesting to get James in to talk about some of this. There'll be a lot of commentary from the left over this week about the expense of the monarchy, its anachronistic nature, perhaps some mockery of King Charles's more old fogeyish opinions. But attempting to take the king's views seriously seems to me to be a worthwhile exercise. Given the significant potential power of the monarch in our peculiar unwritten constitution, what the queen or the king thinks about the world has at least the potential to creep into and shape our lives. Charles has already made clear that he would be a rather different sort of monarch to the late queen, far more inclined to make rather political interventions, especially on matters close to his own concerns. Think back to his response to the government refusing to allow him to attend last year's COP. And those concerns, James Butler suggested, form a relatively coherent ideology. I started by asking James about what we know about Charles's worldview and how he came to form it. Well, I mean, as you say, there have been a, he has demonstrated a kind of consistent belief throughout his life. And I think probably the biographical details are helpful here. I mean, really, I think you've got to look at, at the kind of when he's really very young, he's sent off to boarding school. He's born, you know, as someone interested in ideas in a family that's very, very hostile to them, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the Windsors don't think. He's not like his father. He's not sporty. He's not, you know, all of these things. He goes to Gordonston, doesn't have a good time, as it is well known. He goes to Cambridge with grades that would get nobody else into Cambridge. But, uh, you know, he goes. He studies archaeology and anthropology. And he encounters there you know, the, I think it's his chaplain who exposes him to the ideas of Jung. Mm-hmm. Um, he eventually becomes, after after graduation, he becomes a devotee of Lawrence van der Post, mm-hmm. who is a, a primitivist in some sense, right? So he's really interested in traditional societies with a small T there. And then he's sort of surrounded by people like Kathleen Rain, who's a, a poet and a, she chairs a, an academy that he eventually sets up. You know, people like Ted Hughes, who's a bit of an interloper in this circle, mm-hmm. but but has some of the same ideas. And these are people who are interested in, in traditionalism with a big T, right? So these are, uh, you know, people who... Well, uh, you know, I, I think I recommended to you that you have a look at his book. Which I did. Yeah, called Harmony, which is a very... It's a very, very weird... <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, I mean, it has almost everything in it, right? I mean, it's... Well, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, this is the excuse for doing it. There's even a bit of economics in there, yes, which perhaps yes, we'll, yes. we'll have to wrap up on. But, but um, so I think, I think you get in that book his thesis, right? And I think the thing intellectually that he's known for in Britain is hating modern architecture. Mm-hmm. But really, that's just an expression 
of his belief that at, at quite a basic level, modern man suffers a kind of spiritual crisis, a crisis of disconnection, um, a crisis um, of alienation, of ignorance, um, ignorance of sort of eternal truths, mm -hmm. right? So for him, there's a sort of divine order to the cosmos. So there's something objective that structures reality. And traditional wisdom, which is a sort of deposit of human learning through the ages, expresses that often in sort of, he, he goes for sort of the golden ratio and you know, various things like this. These ideas might be familiar um, to some of the people listening. But the conclusion he draws from that is, is that this sort of alienation from those truths you know, is responsible on the one hand for a kind of subjective mm -hmm. despair and lostness that constitutes sort of modern conditions. But more importantly, is kind of more generally socially responsible for yeah. all the evils of kind of greed, of kind of, you know, ugliness in, in the contemporary world, and in particular, destruction, ecological disaster, mm -hmm. um, alienation from nature. And so for him, he's, you know, th that, that's a diagnosis of the contemporary that I think would be familiar to a lot of people, <laughs> um, perhaps without necessarily the spiritual dimension, which is very important for him. But, it, you know, this, this, you know, I use the word alienation, which he doesn't use so, so much. I am you know, <laughs> um, from background, which means that that's the, the language I, I reach for. But for him, there is a solution, right? And that's traditionalism, this time with a big capital T these forms of kind of traditional learning, which express something, mm -hmm. you know, true and resonant, right? So you get bits and, you know, bits and bobs throughout his kind of speaking about symbols which resonate with, um, you know, kind of the human soul. And this is very, very important to him. I, you could boil it down to that meme that goes around um, on the sort of, you know, the reject modernity embrace tradition thing, <laughs> um, which means that there are lots of kind of strange people on Reddit who are like, oh, Charles is a based king. But it's not entirely wrong. That is sort of what he believes. It seems fairly clearly what he believes. I mean, this is, it's not sort of what he believes. It's like he's written quite a long book <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that says this. And it, it's, there are a number of different routes into it. There's a sort of, I mean, this is getting into perhaps the style that some of these people want you to read things. There's a sort of esoteric and exoteric reading of the book. The, the exoteric reading is that Charles has got a lot of fairly familiar sort of somewhat ecological, somewhat conservative views about the world that he's put together and there's lots of examples of how his charity is operating, this sort of thing. But the underlying structure of it is, I think, much closer to something you pointed out, which is the idea of traditionalism with a capital T, and the capital T is, is quite important here. So not just, isn't it nice to have old things? Isn't it nice to do stuff they used to do in the past and still do it today? It's like, this is a, a way of thinking about how the world operates and a criticism of modernity. And I wonder if you might want to just explain a bit more yeah, what is that traditionalism with a T? Well, I think the first thing to say here is that this is a set of ideas that is slightly distinct from mm. the kind of common ideology of the British ruling class and the aristocracy in particular. There's a lot of stuff about bloodlines. There's a reason they like breeding horses. Um, there's a kind of really quite creepy eugenic side to the British aristocracy. Um, and a sort of, and then there are things that to which he's closer mm -hmm. in that history. Things like a certain, and perhaps we can come on to talk about it, a certain skepticism about democracy, or a sense that you know regimes of government rise and fall. This is you know a, an idea that it has much wider history than just the British aristocracy, but a sense that you know everything is pretty much temporary, mm -hmm. um, including perhaps this sort of rather deranged experiment in democracy, and then something about the land. 
right? And this is a big deal for him, but it's a big deal for the British aristocracy as well. They see themselves as stewards or responsible mm-hmm. or owners, and which one they think of themselves as depends on the context. But so that stuff is important and it's in the background here. Traditionalism, and I think this is one of those things that it's difficult to talk about because you can't see the capital T on it, but it's a... And maybe the way into it is to say that, so Charles has set up mm-hmm. this institute called Temenos, which is, you know, devoted to expressing these sort of perennialist ideas. And uh, in a speech that he gave to them some, you know, some years ago, it's late 1990s, 1998, I think, and he says something, he, he quotes from a traditionalist authority, and I think it's a nice summation of what they believe, that when they talk about modernity, they're mm-hmm. not talking about simply a period in history, not simply a temporal period. They're they're talking about a period in which they are cut off from the transcendent, right? So this is an idea that has many expressions. Mm -hmm. My personal reading is that you can't start to think like this until you're in the late 19th century and you have, you know, the the results of kind of philological scholarship. You're thinking about comparative religion. You're thinking about things like that. People from this school of thought would argue that that there is a history of this stuff that goes yeah. way, way, way back. So, you know, in that book, for instance, the Charles or perhaps one of his uh, co-authors <laughs> invokes someone like Marsilio Ficino, who's yeah. doing this in kind of 15th century Florence. Anyway, really the big influence here is someone like René Guénon. Um, and Charles is very careful not to cite Guénon um, in public. Well, his institute does on occasion. The institute does, but he won't use the, the word. And I think that's a, a careful bit of PR because Gaynon is really a reactionary. So his conception, I think that the, the, the thing to take from it and the thing that attracts Charles to it is that traditional cultures for Gaynon and, you know, by which, he, you know, maybe we can talk about what he means by that, but they are vertical cultures, mm-hmm. right? So they reflect this kind of cosmic order, which is innate and external. It exists out, out there somewhere in the cosmos. And it's reflected through traditional architecture or kind of traditional social structures, um, traditional roles that people have in social structures. You can see where this stuff gets a bit creepy and weird. And for these people, the West used to exist like this as well, right? And this is important. But then profane philosophy comes along, um, like the Enlightenment, um, mm. at which point um, they cease to be a kind of vertical society and they become, and the reign of quantity, which is a phrase that Charles used and is a Ganonian phrase, the reign of quantity arrives and uh, it's incapable of that desire for, or, or addressing that desire for mm-hmm. kind of spiritual resonance or, or any of those other nice phrases. So Gaynon, it should be said, is, you know, this is a man who's kind of deeply, deeply interested, um, particularly in the history of Islamic mysticism, mm-hmm. And in fact, he converts to Islam later in his life. He becomes a Sufi. For him, traditional religious cultures are extremely important. Um, and the religious dimension is, is, is an extremely interesting one here. Probably to some people listening, this will sound a little like, isn't this like theosophy or one of those kind of late 19th century weird syncretic religions or kind of occult movements? Um, again, on hated that stuff, but he hated it with the hatred that you have if you're proximate to stuff like that. And that actually seems very... very, So he hated all the new thought and he hated the theosophists and people like that. But, you know, speaking as an outsider, one finds them occasionally hard to distinguish. What he would say is that he desires to preserve traditional deposits, whereas, um, you know, 
these other people are doing sort of weird syncretism, um, which sort of smushes together all these kind of ancient wisdoms. Now, the claim often made by these people is that they're not arguing for a return to the past. Mm -hmm. Um, They're arguing for something that will address what is a kind of deep spiritual yearning in contemporary culture, which which is no longer addressed by modern institutions. And I think that's not an unreasonable insight. I think it takes them to some very unpleasant places. But it's not an unreasonable insight that there is a kind of deep injury um, in modernity. I mean, you know, it's not just traditionalists Mm -hmm. who um, talk like this. It's, you know, (laughs) you can go and read Adorno um, and and get something similar, um, not quite the same. Or ecologists of various sorts, which... Charles does cite, you know, repeatedly yeah, yeah. in his book, in fact, yeah, repeatedly absolutely. in his writings, that absolutely. this is a sort of clear physical evidence of damage. So for me, I think one of the interesting questions here is, is you know, why this ideology, why, you know, why it's attractive to him. And I think you can see some things about it that will be obviously attractive to someone in his social position. Mm-hmm. It strikes me as a little strange because normally the people who are attracted to this kind of thought tend to be middle class. They don't tend to be upper class, Mm -hmm. actually, and they tend to be in sometimes quite precarious social situations, so kind of classic kind of petty bourgeoisie, Mm -hmm. um, you know, who actually don't have the sort of security that someone like Charles has. So I think there's an interesting question about him personally and why this stuff attracts him. There's an interesting side of this to do with the kind of history of his role as head of the Church of England but who is also kind of deeply interested in particularly Eastern Orthodoxy, which he sees, and I'm, you know, I don't think he's ever expressed this this openly, but, like, it seems pretty clear that he regards that as probably the most unbroken expression of Christianity in in Europe. You know, he's very, very interested in Islam and in particular um, kind of traditional Islamic building Mm -hmm. um, and, and... you know, and geometry and the, and the role of kind of sacred geometry and, and things like that. So you can see these sort of, you know, where these interests coincide for him. There are some problems here for me. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> just a few, just a few. Um, one is that, you know, if you take this in the direction that I think you can take it or that, that it often goes, mm-hmm. it's like you think, okay, well, what are we saying here? Are we saying something that starts to sound a bit like Duganism or something mm. like that, right? The ideology of these kind of you know, strange sort of you know, Rasputin-like figures who regard you know, humanity as being essentially divided mm-hmm. into religious cultural dispositions, um, which are non-overlapping, are culturally distinct, um, and there should be no mixing between them. Right, that you know. So there is a, a European deposit. There is a Slavic. There is a, 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 a an Indian. One of the interesting histories here is the kind of, at the same time, you know, they have huge regard for what they think of as kind of Hindu yeah. thought, while also being really quite racist. Um, very, very, you know, not rare in the nineteenth century, but mm-hmm. like, you know, or early twentieth. So there's that sort of kind of strange thought of kind of dispensations, right? Steve Bannon is someone yeah. else who, who sort yeah. of tags along with yeah, at least absolutely. with this stuff. Absolutely. And, and I think that's one of the interesting things about it. These ideas kind of disseminate in, in all sorts of strange ways. And once you start seeing, you know, their origins, you start to see there's a kind of strange network of people who are reading this stuff. For me, the problem of perennialism is always, like, that it actually obliterates historical differentiation. Mm-hmm. So, like, 
you know, it produces often quite flattering spiritual truths without any of the sort of historical, um, you know, problems um, involved in the generation of those truths. The real one for me is the translation of this into social order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is where the kind of, you know, ideal understanding of a, a spiritual tradition. So Eastern Orthodox is a really good example here. It's not just Patriarch Kirill in Mos- Moscow, who is, you know, not only a kind of weird tobacco smuggler, but also the sort of chief ideologist of Putin's war. Um, but the Orthodox Church in Greece, for instance, yeah. is so deeply imbricated with political power that, you know, it's retreats that major politicians go on are opportunities for kind of all sorts of corruption and wheeling yeah. and dealing. So, you know, that's, you know, get a little materialism in here, <laughs> please. Um, but even more so, you follow this idea to its conclusion and then you think, okay, I see why this appeals to you as someone whose life was laid out for him mm-hmm. before he was born, whose only purpose is to keep on living and inherit the job that his mum had. Mm-hmm. For these people, their ideal social order is the, where the son of a farmer is also a farmer, and his son, I mean, women barely figure, uh, and, his, and his son and his son. And you know what? Like, I'm an adopted child, and, and ultimately, like, you know, the child of families who were, you know, peasant farmers, you know, four or five generations ago. Okay, like what you, what this ideology says about me is that I should be, you know, chapping my hands in a fucking field somewhere. Like, and you see, this is a this is a, a way of thinking that is against hybridity, mm-hmm. is against how people actually live. It's one of the critiques that's often leveled at Charles's architectural views, and particularly Poundbury is that, um, which is the the town that's constructed according to his uh, theories is that they're lovely ideas, they look nice, they don't have people in them, they don't respond to how people actually live. And I think there's a lot of weight to that criticism. It, it ties in very directly with his, his, his commentary on, on, on what we think of as economics. I mean, the, the point with this sort of view of the world is that economics is a separate subject. It's not really uh, something that exists. You, you form an organic whole and everybody slots into it. But when he talks about particularly economic growth, and I think his, his real objection to it is, is something like that, that it, it creates hybridity, it creates new opportunities for things to happen. It's inherently disruptive. So there's a, a sort of radical anti-capitalism there. If you take somebody who's very keen on the disruptive properties of economic growth, Joseph Schumpeter, somebody, for example, guy who coins uh, creative destruction. Why is capitalism good? Because it can creatively destroy things, create new opportunities. What we have in this is a flip side of that, uh, what we have in Charles's views, certainly in his book, what he's been saying for many years, actually. Flip side of that is that this is precisely why it's so bad. This is why we must oppose growth. That the creation of new possibilities is what we have to stand against here. And everything else falls out of this in terms of how you treat nature and how you treat the, the ecology and how you treat other human beings. I think that's, I think that's right. And I think you see this in, in a term that crops up throughout that Harmony book, which is nature's cyclical economy, Right. And from this perspective, the idea of growth itself is, you know, a ludicrous one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is that everything's already there. It's, you know, it's the same as this kind of seeking of a kind of eternal mm-hmm. and unchanging pattern in the cosmos, right? That you have to just slot into. Your roles are already there. They're already there to be, um, you know, and, and, and to deviate from them is to, is to kind of disorder the world. And, you know, I think this is, it, it, you know, it's, 
It's a difficult one, this one, because, you know, if you present this argument to lots of people who are affiliated to this school of thought, they say, oh, well, no, you've got it wrong. You're not understanding that actually, you know, we're, we're, we're all for creativity, mm-hmm. but, you know, creativity within limits or, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever. But that's, that seems to me exactly right. I mean, you know, perhaps if you're a royal... You, you see the rise of capitalism and the decline of um, monarchical authority as being you know, ultimately historically interlinked. I mean, certainly if you have half a brain, Charles probably has just about half a brain. So the striking thing about the book, as you say, is that is that you know it has a conception of economy in the sense mm-hmm. of a, a kind of ordering, right? Yeah. That there is you know a, 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 an ordering of human society of the uh, you know of the planet um, but what it is not you know is political economy yeah. frankly yes. <laughs> um, and so that you know that it's one of the you know I was thinking before this conversation about the you know like the the curious absence of this question yeah, yeah. because the book cites keynes um yeah. you know it, it says you know keynes thought we could reach a state where we you know we would you know perhaps put our energies into sort of non-economic mm-hmm. um ends yes that's reasonable but you know in, in <laughs> I mean, um, it, it's a curious. I don't know. There's there's something. Well, perhaps the way to think about this is is that there are these curious. You know, the book is 2010, right? Yeah. And so it's bef- it's after the financial crisis, but it's before the popularity of kind of degrowth yeah. economics or or anything like that. So it, it emerges at quite an interesting point. Um, and there's a sort of melancholic mm-hmm. side to it that says like, oh, we could use this opportunity to really, you know, not you know, try to, to reinstitute growth in the way that it's going to almost certainly be reinstituted, etc. Well, that, that's actually what we did. Yes, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Not, not through intent. <laughs> <laughs> this is basically what's happened yes. for the last two years. Yes, I mean, it hasn't, it hasn't worked out brilliantly, I have to say. Um, yes, it's true, it hasn't returned. Um, I was thinking about, you know, high-level questions of kind of uh, climate change, um, and capitalist growth recently, kind of partly as a result of writing about the Andreas Malm oeuvre, mm-hmm. uh, but in particular, kind of the, the the fossil capitalism stuff. And obviously, there's this tendency, and it's often a minority tendency within kind of left wing thought and Marxist thought in particular, to to conceptualise capitalism um, and capitalist growth in particular as a sort of you know, monstrous, runaway, mm-hmm. um, uncontrollable um, force. Yeah. And, you know, th- this is where you get that famous line in Falter Benjamin about perhaps a revolution is actually the pulling of the emergency brake. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a nice line, it's a nice image, it's a nice thought. There's also Du Bois, who, who mm-hmm. you know, who, who writes about, you know, well, you know, that, that actually... Um, from the black historical experience that you can conceptually only see it as this kind of monstrous, yeah. ravening machine, um, not this kind of arc of kind of whiggish yes. um, historical progress. And there's, there's, there's a commonality. There are really curious kind of affinity between Charles, who is essentially, you know, <laughs> saying, stop, stop, stop. You know, stop, I want to get off. Um, and, and, and these kinds of thinking. Although, although I'd say the, the 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 bit that is missing there is if you if you take the sort of the critics of growth from the left, the degrowth movement, the the, the various sort of Marxists you, you've cited, that if you say we're not very keen on endless accumulation of capital, the only way this doesn't end up looking 
somewhat reactionary is if you also say we are keen on redistribution, yes. we are keen yes. on democracy. And, and these are words that do not appear in, in Charles's uh, it's lexicon. It's really striking, say. isn't it? They it's don't quite... appear in the book at all. Um, and, and, you know, for obvious reasons. <laughs> I mean, this is where lots of the kind of left-wing commentary um, around the coronation will be very helpful and they will point out the many, many, many millions and the kind of curious exemption from legal regimes, um, you know, privacy of kind of estate transfer, things like that. All very, very, very important. And that, so there is a reason that taxation <laughs> does not occur to him as a method or as an important part of this question. Um, it, you know... What there is in the book is a kind of hostility to consumerism, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is kind of startling if you look at the sort of footprint of, of the monarchy and of Charles in particular. And, you know, there, there are these kind of vague gestures to things like community capital and things like that. And I think, you know, again, this is a, a, a moment where you see, as far as there is economic thought at all, mm -hmm. it is completely subservient to this kind of sense that, that that there's a set of kind of uh it's it's almost wrong to talk about political and policy tools in this sense right um it almost seems like for charles the role of politics is is something to be greatly greatly reduced from what it is at the moment there are obvious affinities with other conservative thinkers here but so you know as far as economics exists for for him it's a set of you know tools whereby you, know, you can you can achieve certain quite limited goals. And so this, you know, th th there's almost a sort of meta-economic question, and I think it's quite a valuable one, right, about what we value, how things get valued, you know, where does community figure in all these. For me, you take those questions to their logical conclusion, and citizen Windsor is not going to like the answer. I mean, the, the where he does reference economists directly. There's a few times, he does actually spend a bit of time in this, but you mentioned one of them yourself, Keynes, who he cites, and people may recognise the, the reference. It's the uh, economic possibilities for our grandchildren, where he sits in, what, 1930 and says, by 1990 or some vast date in the future, we'll all be working, you know, eight-hour day, not eight-hour day, sorry. Uh, it'd be nice if we were, but <laughs> eight hours a week would be more yes, likely. You know, yes, kind yes. Of, it's that sort of end of things, yeah. and, and we'll have life, lives of leisure. Uh, and Charles Windsor also references John Stuart Mill, who, who in the 18, what, 1845, maybe a bit later in 1850, talks about, you know, actually growth will probably just die off and we'll have a, a fairly pleasant time with all this leisure. And they both end up in the same place, uh, Mills and, and Keynes. And they both come from the same sort of place, which is that quite strikingly, neither of them I would really call Democrats in any sort of modern sense. And both of them actually had a certain degree, there's a debate you can have with both of them, but at least some antagonisms to the modern labour movement, for yeah. example. Now, both of them also had associations with what was, in Mills's case, the emerging mm. labour movement, in Keynes's case, more established version of that. But they are both quite elitist thinkers. They are both essentially of the view that, well, if the clever people were in charge properly, you know, properly clever people were properly in charge, everything would be a lot better. So Mill, you know, favours the extension of the franchise, even to women, which is at the time very progressive, but only to people who have a certain amount of education. Keynes is kind of always a bit questionable about his association with democracy and the idea in particular of anything like workers' democracy or workers' control is something completely anathema to him. It's no great surprise that Charles lights on this mm. is where he wants to talk about economics. Yes, I think that's right. And I mean, the, the, the political side of this is, you know, as you say, there is no democracy in the book at all. I and mean, what there is, is there's a curious... Um, 
there's it's, it's a, to say it's quite a heavily illustrated book, right? And the captions are often very interesting. There's um, a shot of a favela, I think, in Sao Paulo, you know, next to kind of a series of kind of high rise, um, rather. Uh, I mean, he would hate them, but but you know, rather clean looking blocks. And he says, well, see, endless growth doesn't mean that everyone um, is going to, to, to see the benefits. He's like, yes, yes, I agree, I agree, that's true. And so, so what there is for him is, is clearly this, this thought that, that there is a certain mode of distribution, both of economic gains, but also of ability, mm-hmm. of capacity, of, of the kind of people who should be running things, which seems to me to be kind of a recurrent theme not just of conservative thought, but as you, as you say, sort of ends of sort of liberal thought as well. And I don't want to overstate it. I mean, you know, as you say, Keynes in particular has a very complicated relationship to, you know, the kind of passions that he thinks can animate people when they get together in large blocks. Mill also, as you say, very, very concerned about what happens when, you know, faction of one kind or another you know, this is the thought that ultimately comes from Hobbes, right? Hobbes is very concerned what happens when one group gets the upper hand against others, so he thinks you should live in a state of fear and all obey a single ruler. Um, yeah. Charles, weirdly, not a Hobbesian. I mean, there's yeah, not I was about to say, Charles of... doesn't think no, that. No, Charles he doesn't, doesn't want you to live in a state of fear of the single no, ruler, right? No, in, no, in no. He wants to live in a sort of happy, kind of organic, you know, natural order. And in, in, in this, you know, and this is a side note, really... In this, I think you see that, that that Charles is a child of the 60s, right? And, and you know, his intellectual development, it's not stalled there, but there's a certain, you know, you, you know, he's clearly taken his development from that kind of cultural moment in a way that kind of Elizabeth was very much, you know, really a 1940s sort of person in this sort of kind of austere, you know, rigid, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And he comes back again and again to the 1960s. Yeah. It's a sort of it's a transitional point for yeah. him. The, yeah. the, the, there is a kind of history beforehand, which is modernity in different ways. In the 60s, a bit where it all really gets very carried yes. away and all goes hideously wrong. Yes. And it's it's you know it's the point where a mass consumption society becomes embedded on a wide scale, at least in the developed world. Yeah, right? it is, There are a series of transitions you can point to around. Absolutely. I mean, he's like he's he's like Ratzinger in in that sense. Pope Benedict actually um, had exactly the same thought. <laughs> Ratzinger, Pope Benedict sees a student protest, and up until that point, it'd been something of a radical yeah, even, yeah. and completely. Uh, switches his Rejects modernity embraces tradition. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think that's right. And and you know, as as you say, there are objective things you can point to here at which you know a consumer society really mm. um, you know develops in a way that it hadn't yeah. quite in the same way before. Um, and, you know, it's also true in terms of kind of income growth and, and things like yeah. that. I do think there's you know that th- that it's a moment of kind of transition, and that he's pointing to something that's objectively discernible and the question of, of of how you respond to that if you're on the left is an interesting one right because I think it's you know I mean, one of the things that I think thought like this which clearly has an appeal you know I don't think it's the world's most successful ideology but it has mm. you know an appeal to, to lots of people is that it says something about that the, the way that that's not satisfying, the way that that is a kind of hollow experience and doesn't satisfy in some way the kind of needs that the many people have. Now, there is a, a long tradition on the left of thinking about this, actually, which, you know, happens at the time. Marcuse from, there are, you know, lots and lots of thinkers on the left who are, are very interested in this question. 
it has vanished to some extent from the contemporary left. And I think as we start to move into questions about ecology, which of course is Charles's big thing, we're going to have to confront them. I wanted to pick up on that about it not being a successful ideology because, look, historically, how does capitalism embed itself, not just as a, as a sort of economic system, how does it embed itself in people's heads, in the ideas that people have, in, in the fact that people will support a system that looks like this? This happens really from the 1850s onwards when growth turns in from being something that happens very erratically and chaotically in a few bits of the economy, in the industrialised bits of the economy in Britain. England and bits of Wales, really, into Scotland, and becomes generalised into something that happens across much of the economy, across much of what we now call the developed world. And you can see that this is providing improved standards of living for a large number of people, sufficiently improved that this looks like it's a goer. The kind of the reactionary ideologies that say we are against growth tend to be in a bit of a downer since then. Now, as we're approaching a point where growth looks increasingly difficult, it does look like there's a point at which a sort of reactionary version of anti-growth starts to make sense. This is reading the book. It felt somewhat ahead of its time yeah, yeah. in getting into some of these questions in 2010 oh, yeah. rather than you know, 2018 or, or some point a few years after a few more years of things not really working properly. No, I think that's one of the things that's most remarkable about it. And I don't, I don't know the work of the co-authors very well, but you know, it, it reads as something more recent. And I think that's, you know, there, there's something about it that's almost uncanny um, in that sense. I think you're right as well, you know, and maybe this is a moment to talk about kind of his relation to ecology and, and to climate change and to the green movement, which is that, you know, in, in some ways, Charles's views, you know, foreground a sort of latent kind of contradiction or a tension or a problem within the climate movement more generally between the sort of conservationist aspect of ecology and, you know, essentially the kind of modernist scientific questions, um, which are all to do with how you deal with climate change at scale, right? So the obvious instantiation of this conflict in Britain, or one of the many, many, is HS2, right? So HS2 has required cutting into some ancient woodlands, now, the extent to which, you know, it's a designation. Yeah. Some of them are, you know, rather scrubby, some are not. But the truth is that, frankly, some trees have to be cut down to make high-speed rail. That then allows all sorts of decarbonisation in transport, yes. you know, better, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this argument you know, has been made clearly and very well many times over. But the emotional and psychological impact of cutting down trees mm-hmm. is very difficult for people. And... You have to have the argument and make clear the point that that you know this is operating towards you know this end or that end. Now, that's a small example in one sense. If we're serious about decarbonisation, I am not persuaded by arguments for kind of carbon capture technology things yeah. like this. But if you are going to sustain the human population of this planet. Big question for Charles there. We can come back to that one because it sort of looms over everything. Big question for him. Um, But if you're going to sustain the human population of this planet, um, if you're going to um, continue to have a standard of living which does not put people in unbelievable um, abjection, then you need really large-scale, frankly modernist, in both senses, right? 
you know, rational, instrumental, scientific reason, but also sort of modernist in in the sense of kind of scale and you know size, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and this this conflict, I think, it's weird in one sense that it hasn't affected the kind of green movement in this country more sharply than it has. Mm-hmm. Or than it's starting to. You know, it feels like a conflict that should have arisen sooner. And you know, I think both things are possible, right? I think you can synthesize the two of these approaches, but also recognize, you know, because so there's what there's there's a there's a kind of agnosiology to Charles's approach here, right? That that for all that we kind of know things about the cosmic order and the kind of mathematical uh, basis of kind of you know life and you know the divine the signature of the divine within the cosmos. There's also loads that we don't know that nature knows better than us, right? So his metaphor here is, if I'm remembering correctly from the book, is you know you pick up a, a pinch of soil and it has countless billions of microbes in, and we've no idea what those microbes do and. And, you know, and nature is so complex and vast. And, 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 you know, like, I have some sympathy with that viewpoint, Mm -hmm. right? Like, it's true. Like, one of the best things we can often do is allow, you know, the kind of random generative process of nature, um, you know, rather than kind of monocropping and thinking, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. However, like, human science is good, right? Human science is what means that people, you know, in this country at least, don't generally die of preventable infections. Um, We do know what some microbes do. They're the ones that kill us. And we're making pretty good progress at no longer having them kill us. So this this kind of, you know, kind of ooh, sort of you know, almost sort of you know mystical approach to to nature and sort of almost like not wanting to kind of you know tug up the veil of Isis. Um <laughs> it was a curious. I've been reading a lot of Pierre Hadot recently. Um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like this this kind of reticence to value the way that human beings have interacted with the world. And it's curious for someone who is a farmer, or as Charles often likes to mm. call himself, because the history of human agriculture is precisely messing around with nature and producing better crops and crops that can kind of feed human beings, whereas, you know, they used to not produce very much grain at all, or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you, you may have hit on the fatal flaw in the traditionalist ideology at this point, which is, uh, you know, <laughs> why this set of traditions and not something else. Yeah, but yeah. but the, there is... There is something about his approach to science, which is where this esoteric, exoteric thing might still apply, is that he throws in quite a lot of science, quite a lot of climate science. Now, this is where the book, I think, is slightly dated, in that, you know, this is 2010, when, and and Charles does talk about his appearance at the Copenhagen COPS in 2009, which is a complete disaster for the planet and everyone. And it's written just after that. And it's written with the aim of, like, we're going to take on climate change denial. Now, here we are 12, 13 years later. Uh, It's not the same, you know, question as it used to be, right? It's not really there. But there's a lot of science to say, okay, this and this and this and this and this. There is significantly less support for the idea of science as such. And that's been quite generous because actually quite frequently, you know, science is basically a bad thing. Yes, and, it, yes, and if it's yes. put in its little box to say stuff that reveals the essential truth about the universe, which I've already know about, yeah. fine. If it's going to do something else, then, you know, forget it. It's, it's genetically modified organi- organisms bad. Selective breeding of racehorses or whatever, presumably okay. <laughs> yes. uh, but and, and for some reason, there's an absolute barrier between these two things, for example. 
No, that's right. And and it's a you know, like it's it's an odd approach, right? And as you say, I think it reveals something of the weakness of this school of thought, which is precisely that it, you know, it, it is founded on this kind of, you know, fantasy of the human past in which you know, human beings, as long as there have been human beings, have been altering nature. It's what human beings do. The question of allow, you know, of changing the way in which mm. human beings alter nature is to me, you know, the, the most important yeah. question that we have to face. And, you know, this this kind of fantasy that we can return. You know, and again, you can't avoid the question of population here. And it's mm-hmm. one that, you know, so so, you know, I I it, it's it's in some ways the most kind of frightening mm-hmm of the views that Charles advocates. You know, if you think about the, the time the book was was written, or maybe just before, there are lots of kind of self-professed sort of sceptics mm-hmm. um, who would zero in on Charles's support for things like homeopathy and yeah, yeah. things like that. And, and, you know, I think those are symptomatic. I think they tell us something about him. I think... Probably there's there's no that I you know they don't seem most compelling to me at yeah. the moment. What seems most compelling to me at the moment is the fact that the guy mentions Paul Ehrlich. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, this is a this is you know and and you will know this stuff better than I am I'm sure. But but you know he says at various points in the book we have to confront this question that has become overheated, which is the question of human population. I mean, this is the other sort of hidden thinker in the book, I suppose, which is uh, good old Thomas Robert Malthus. In two senses, actually. One, which well, the one that everyone knows, which is Malthusianism. This is about people breed too much, particularly poor people, and that's a problem, and you have to do something about it, which... I'm not parodying Paul Ehrlich too much to say no. that this this is you know this is where he sits on that particular question. The other one is is the more obscure Malthus, which is Malthus as, as a kind of early elite theorist himself, that it's good to have rich people because they can consume the excess and in so doing create jobs for everybody else. Now you might hear a little echo there, because it's more than a little echo of Keynes's thinking on exactly this issue, that, well, we can have aggregate demand, this will create jobs for everybody, and if it just so happens that, you know, some rich people have the money to do this, then a version of Keynesianism will say, well, that's fine, because they're creating jobs. There's that sense in which Malthus both offers a description of society as it could operate, an economy as it could operate, where rich people have money and that creates jobs for everybody else, and that's good. Everybody's sorted into their order. And if you don't do that, along comes this sort of inevitability of nature to smash everything up, to force everyone into famine, to make sure you get back to what you're supposed to be doing in the first place, which is everybody in their place. That, yeah, that that seems absolutely right. And, and, and you can see, actually, from the way that you've phrased it, of course, how you can be in a position like Charles's ideologically and see, yes, you know, there is a natural order here which is being terribly... I mean, he uses that, he uses the analogy of an overdraft um, with nature, which... (laughs) You know, uh, it's a very popular... He keep, by the way, this is something, accountancy. Yeah. He keeps coming back to like, oh, well, actually, I've said all these things about nature and the cosmos and stuff, but but incidentally, if we do this, it's really good for business and you'll make more money. Yes. And it's like, yeah, hang yeah, on, yeah. Well, which, which thing do you really yes. believe here, by the way? Because yes. the, the grubby business of profit-making and accountancy is not quite in tune with the eternal music of the spheres or whatever the fuck it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, uh, a point at which he's sort of... And you can really see his kind of understanding of... You know, capitalism in particular, but 
you know, the, how it fits in for him, you know, he, he sort of goes after financial speculation, right? Because there's something monstrous about financial speculation. And lots of people have thought of financial speculation as monstrous and kind of unnatural. You know, the church thought it was unnatural mm-hmm. in, the, in the Middle Ages. So it's not really a surprise that Charles does as well. Although curiously, I mean, you know, it, it should be said that, you know, Charles's or sort of traditionalist medievalism is is so removed from how medievals actually thought of themselves. It's a kind of, you know, it's the other thing about this stuff is it's all kind of cold history. Mm-hmm. Um, it really annoys me as as you know as someone who's historically minded. So again, this is one of those those areas where he says, well, maybe we need to redefine what we mean by wealth. So kind of natural wealth, the wealth of knowledge. How do we value kind of the knowledge of traditional societies? And those are all interesting and important questions. Inevitably here, you end up with just this sense that, <laughs> that he thinks there are too many people. And, you know, it's pretty apparent that he thinks there are too many people. What, what the book doesn't do and what Charles doesn't do and what none of these people ever do is talk about what it looks like to reduce the human population, right? Because there are only a number of ways of doing it, right? One of the ways of doing it is by education, right? Yes. And actually, kind of social progress, people have fewer children. Yes, and this is more or less what's happening yeah. in any case, right? Yeah. You know, one of the questions here is about kind of time. Mm-hmm. And so it seems to me pretty apparent that... So, I mean, he has this whole kind of extended passage in the book where he says back when the population of the planet was 1.8 billion, then we'd used up our sort of natural allowance by you know, September. It's coming mm-hmm. you know, closer and closer. And so he, I think his sense is that unless the population reduces very rapidly, then we will you know, become bankrupt um, sooner rather than later. I don't know. But other than through education and redistribution, then you look at some pretty dark instances of sort of social control, yeah. um, of kind of negative coercion, of rationing of medical goods, of things like that. And you might say that these are things that implicitly happen anyway, right? You might say that on a global scale, these things are pretty much part of public policy, whether you um, acknowledge them explicitly or not. It it seems to me that if you start talking about population control in a more explicit way, then those things cease to be Mm -hmm. uh, unarticulable, right? They they cease to be outside of the acceptable realm of political discourse and start to be, you know, well, why don't we incentivize you know, disabled people not to have children? Why don't we incentivize, you know, poor people not to have children? Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You can see where this stuff goes because, <laughs> because it happens, you know, it, versions of it are visible within the way that, that, that our economy operates even now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's curious that in a book that is so forthcoming in some mm-hmm. ways that these are the questions that he kind of, you know, runs away from or that, that kind of, you know, that he reaches the border of and realises that this would be so politically controversial to address that he can't do it. And again, you know, like this is, you know, I think that that this, there's something that animates the book and I think it animates the book particularly when it comes to the question of population. And, it, you know, the, for me, the, the best expression of it is that mouth, is a mouthless line actually about the, the fear that uncontrolled breathing will sink the world into universal night, right? So there's this sense he has of like the contemporary world Guy being one of yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just unfortunate, isn't it, when these people can? Um, but he, you know, Charles seems to have this sense that there is a kind of huge spiritual, political, social catastrophe underway, mm-hmm. which could get unbelievably worse 
and part of not it not happening is stopping people from breeding. <laughs> um, and, you know, I go part of the way there. I do think there is a catastrophe of that scale underway, but mm-hmm. I don't think... You know, it doesn't seem obvious to me that the answer has to be sought in population control. And it seems curious to me, or, or perhaps it is self-explanatory, that if you if you cut off all the other avenues to address this problem, then you hit upon population control. Which gets us, I suppose, to the, 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 the kind of concluding parts of this, this little chat, which is like, and it's actually where Charles starts from. He starts the book quite dramatically by saying something along the lines of, this is a call for revolution, which is, you know, brave (laughs) (laughs) as heir to the throne and now monarch uh, to be saying something like this. But it's not very clear what he actually might mean by that. What what are they, if if we have to boil it down to, lots and lots of stuff about, you know, the the eternal uh, golden thread (laughs) in history and, and, and this sort of thing and maybe hints at something darker along the way. What are his actual politics? What does he mean if he says we need a revolution? It's a really hard question to answer um, because precisely he goes in for these sort of kind of curious euphemisms about relationship and things like that. I think the answer is that what, you know, and it's, it's, it's hard to answer because n- none of us think of revolution as being something that delivers stasis, mm-hmm. Right. But what Charles wants is a static society. What he wants is a society in which the answers are already given and in which all the agonies of modernity are no longer addressed and we live in harmony with the great teacher, which is nature. Right? And that, that is what he re- that's really what he believes. Mm-hmm. Now, lots of the steps on the way there are not very clear at all from, from what he says. But it's a revolution in which, like, everything else changes right? Mm-hmm. Not him and not his life and not, um, <laughs> not the things that, you know, Terry Eagleton reviewed this book and very punchy. Wasn't piece. keen. Wasn't didn't, keen. Didn't enjoy it. <laughs> really cutting. But he uses, um, at the end of the piece, he, he, he used a, you know, he said, you know, Charles should heed the, the story that Brecht told, right, which is of a king who summons his wise men to him and says, my country is in agony, my people are starving, they are miserable, go out into the world and tell me what's wrong, and the wise men come back and say, it's you, <laughs> right, and that, you know, it's, you know, that's the point beyond which Charles can't go, right, like there, there's not, you know, for, he, you know, he can't get to, to seeing the way in which the, the you know, for Charles Windsor to exist, therefore all sorts of other things have to exist. And obviously, like, it's very difficult to expect someone like that to have that degree of self-knowledge or that degree of kind of social knowledge. Like, everything militates against it. So it's not surprising in that sense. But what I do think maybe for us or for those who are perhaps not of Charles's disposition... You know, it ought to raise a series of questions for us. Like, one is, like, defenders of monarchy always say that it's a natural institution, mm-hmm. right? That's not true. Like, it, you know, it, it arises as a consequence of violence and theft. Like, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, as human and as constructed an institution as any other, right? But I think there's something comforting about, about the kind of illusions that monarchy um, allows people I think 
and I think people look for comfort. Yeah. I think the idea that there is a natural order, and you know, so one of the things Charles is, you know, Charles says is that you know the crown is a living symbol. It's the kind of thing that can lead, you know, change at a kind of fundamental cultural level rather than a political level. This kind of tells us quite a lot about what he might be like as a monarch. And I think that's that's a, something we should be aware of, and that's something that we should mm-hmm. perhaps be quite concerned about. It strikes me that we're probably not going to get rid of him. Seems the appetite for constitutional change of that kind is quite low. Yeah. Um, and therefore, we have to think about the kind of problems that that he presents to us. And I don't mean just in a sense of like, you know, um, you know, roll out the guillotine. What I mean is, you know, that politics is going to get weirder, right? It's not just the internet. Yeah. It's uh, the end of the kind of cheap bases of kind of you know late twentieth century society. Politics is going to get a lot, lot weirder, and it's going to include mm-hmm. people like Charles, who you know offer kind of very strange syntheses, which appeal to kind of romantic instincts in people. They appeal to kind of quite comforting desires, like mm-hmm. to you know who doesn't want to live harmoniously with nature? Like who doesn't? Look at you know leaves uh, Marinetti, and like, great. Who he <laughs> yeah. <quotes> at some <laughs> point. <laughs> yes, sure, sure. Yes, no. Uh, Marinetti, true. Um, but you know, I mean, it's you know, it speaks to something kind of deep. You know, there's a reason the Guardian runs bloody wild swimming columns all the time, right? Like it's you know, it's it, there's something there. <laughs> um, popular hunger for meaning, yeah. right? And and this is something you know the left is quite bad at at, at doing. I mean, there's a long historical tradition of finding meaning in in left wing struggle, but you know there, there is a, a kind of desire, I think, increasingly prompted by the ecological crisis to find a sort of sense of the sacred, whatever that means, in terms of the relationship with nature. And I think if that terrain is unoccupied entirely, then it leaves you with the traditionalists and you know people who live in Totnes or, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> between whom apparently there's now a huge crossover. <laughs> um, uh, there's also a desire, and I think this is, you know, a really, really important one, um, a desire for non-politics. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me is the most concerning and the most, you know, again, dangerous is, is not quite the right word, but it's, you know, it's something that particularly people who are involved in in politics or in political journalism or, or you know, one way or another, simply don't see. Mm-hmm. And it's, for me, one of the big, you know, questions of you know, the 2019 election and, the, and Brexit is, is a desire for things to be solved, yeah. right? For things, for, to not to have to worry um, about things. And so, you know, if you can appeal to that desire in people... And there's lots about this that's very seductive if that's what you want the most. So the desire for non-politics, for things to be lifted out mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, of political contestation, big, big part of this and one of the things that can be very appealing about it. So is this King Charles's moment? <laughs> well, yeah, it, it is. Be, it? it really could be. I mean, the, a strong the, sense from reading that yeah, and going yeah. back over what he's been saying, you think, he must yeah, feel yeah. like this is... Yeah, quite yeah. the moment for it. I mean, it's, you know, I, I should say just in terms of biographical notes, you know, he seems to have been less enthused about this stuff since marrying, right? Since the marriage with Camilla, he seems to have been a bit more kind of, less forthcoming yeah. um, on this stuff. But, you know, I think that's, I think that's only very partial. As you say, this stuff has been part of his life for 40, 50 years at this point. He often says... 
each monarch redefines the role, this stuff is how he's going to redefine it. James Butler, thank you very much. Thank you for your time. (laughs) Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.